Blog Talk Radio. everyone. It is Sunday, October 4th, 2020. This is Buddy Bashami. You're listening to GTP Keeper Radio, and I am here with longtime friend and longtime co-host, Bill Stegel. Bill, how are you? Hey, buddy. I'm doing great. Happy Sunday, man. Happy Sunday. What's new? It's always great. Uh, not a whole lot. Just, uh, Kind of pumped up about tonight. Always great spending a couple hours with you um, and our listeners. And can't wait. We got a uh, you know a really cool guest coming on, and, and another Texas guy that uh, I know you'll get to here in a few minutes. And then we've got um, kind of a product spotlight. We're going to I wouldn't say introduce because they're 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 kind of on fire right now. Um, but uh, yeah, man, just just couldn't wait for the show. Just enjoyed a great. Uh, Texas Sunday here. The weather's just been perfect. We'll have that for another two weeks, and then it'll freeze, and then we'll have two weeks of spring, and then it'll be summer. <laughs> what is perfect fall <laughs> weather for you? Uh, well, today the high was maybe 82, low 60, um, and it's been that way really for the last week here. I think we're done Certainly done in the hundreds. We're done in the nineties. I think from here on out, um, you know, we're going to be in the eighties. We may get a spike. I mean, it's not super uncommon um, for October to get a day or two in the nineties, but that's pretty unusual. Um, I've just started to contemplate pairings because the weather is getting suitable. I think I typically start pretty late compared to a lot of people um, just, and I do it, you know, just based, based certainly on the temperature pattern. Right. You were at the mercy of what the weather, you? that's for sure. Yeah, we are. Um yeah, so it yeah. It's uh it's fall here. It's uh we've had mid sixty degree highs, overnight lows in the mid forties. Um so it's it's fall here. Hopefully I'm hopefully uh, hope hoping that we bounce back up a little bit. Um it kinda transitioned really quick and drastic so it could rebound a little bit i'm more of a 70s person than a 60s person myself um same thing just uh started a couple weeks ago introducing some pairings and um you know curious to see how how that all is going to work out for this season but you know it's uh super early and who knows what's going to happen absolutely how's that how's that mail that i sent you settling in you haven't killed him yet have you 
Um, he's he's great. Yeah, he really likes to be handled when I take him out of the freezer. Um, <laughs> so no, he's doing fantastic. Perfect. He's um, you know, uh, I guess I remember a time when I would get a chondro in, and it would like be my obsession for the next week or two, and I would have to peer in on it every hour, um, or you know set my alarm in the middle of the night and go down and look at it, you know, go look at it. Make sure he's drink, um, drinking and all that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, make sure it's, it's alive. And, but you know, it's now it's, it's a, it's a different, uh, different <laughs> mentality, you know, get them in, put them in their cage, make sure they're water, you know, give them fresh water, you know, check them every, check them every couple of days, um, <laughs> wait a week or so before I offer food. Um, and you know, and so that, that's how it's going. And he's, he's doing great. Nice. Um, nice. you know, he's, I thought, you know, coming from you, he'd be a lot more like rock star and loud and stuff. And I kind of warned my wife, you know, we got this counter yeah. coming in and may keep us up at the party or that kind of stuff, but he's been pretty <laughs> mellow. So I like him. He's extremely mellow and all the animals out of that clutch, um, like the sickness, I've been super mellow, super, uh, yeah, just shy, I guess is the right word for these things. Um, so, yeah, so Bill and I did an interesting, something pretty interesting, and it's something that had been on my mind. And uh, Bill and I were kind of playing phone tag, and I was trying to reach out to Bill because I wanted to send him an animal uh, from the clutch that included the hypomelanistic chondro. And my thinking was um, – I have most of that, most of those animals here, even from the previous pairing. And I was thinking, you know, if something were to go bad, um, and this project could could end. So um, yeah. I was trying to get a hold of Bill to see what you know. I was calling Bill with in my mind, you know, Bill would like to send you one of these snakes. That way, at least there is a, a genetic cachet um, out outside of my collection. Uh, that maybe, you know, if anything really bad ever were to happen, um, the project could live on. Um, and right. then, Bill, you got a hold of me first, and what was your suggestion? Yeah. It was pretty much kind of the same thing. Um, you know, I've always been super paranoid about having an event happen to my collection, whether it be disease or power failure or whatever, and I just, you know, with these sickness babies, I just wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to, to send a trusted source, an animal, and just kind of, you know, like we talked about, just kind of a, a safety net, you know, and just um, I'm so enthused about the project and the animals that came out of that, that first pairing that I, if something tragic happened on my end, I'd, I'd, I'd want it to go on, um, obviously, mainly for selfish reasons because enough of those babies were released that the project would go on. Um, but I always, you know, wanted to do everything that I could do to keep the the project in my hand under the worst case scenario. So uh, I think it's probably a similar reason why you wanted to send one. And, you know, I think it's, I, I've never been a big breeding loan person. Um, and I'll, you know, this is a classic. John Irby sent me an animal six months ago, and it wasn't a breeding loan. You know, he just said, "Hey, listen, I want take this animal. 
you know, it's yours, plug it into a great melanistic program. And if you get lucky and hit some babies, you know, send me some babies. And so, you know, I, I just, that, that really got me thinking, you know, let, let's, I just want to spread it around a little bit. And so that's, that's why I, I had the, the thought to maybe send it. And you were obviously thinking kind of the same thing. Yep. Yep. Good. Great minds think alike, Bill. <laughs> well, I, you know, I have always, I have always studied my mentor and so that must be what it is. Yeah, good. But it's it's awesome. He's a cool snake. I'm happy he's here. Um, you know, settled in nicely. Excellent transition period. Um, so, good. you know, it seems like he's doing really well. I'm happy he's here. Um, you know, we're, I'm going to, you know, I'm thinking, uh, you know, long term, maybe uh, an offspring from like one of the Bushmaster New Blue line females that I have here that I think could really take that project of yours into uh take it to new heights in a kind of a different direction as well. Nothing better than blue and black, man. We've talked about it before. I think you they're synergistic kid. traits. Yep. Yep. All right. Um so I actually Bill and you know this, um I do actually keep a very small number of uh snakes that aren't chondros. You can go ahead and guess <laughs> now if you want to. Um, but I've, you none know, of, I always have these little ro- things. None of them royals. None, no royals, no royals. No, you know, Bill, I, don't, I just don't think that, you know, with with your capability with those animals, you know, I think I'd just be nonstop calling you all the time with so many questions that uh, I would really go Listen, from friend status to annoying. So, you know, it's Listen, really the co- reason I'll, I've been avoiding them. I'll coach you up a little bit on the on the husbandry and the breeding of those, and, you know, maybe in a couple of years you'll be ready. Maybe. Possibly. Um, All right. So uh, our, our mutual good friend, Ellen McIntyre, um, about five years ago, was talking about how great diamond pythons were. And, and so he's correct. As, he is correct. Um, and so I was inspired, and so I acquired uh, four diamond pythons that year, and then Owen abruptly sold all of his diamond pythons. Um, so um, I've had these animals for five years now, and um, you know, I've been growing them slowly, doing everything that I've, you know, I've been told you're supposed to do with a diamond python. And so this past year was the first year at a breeding attempt. I had a clutch. Uh, the female laid uh, 12 eggs, and I was going to go maternal incubation. And about two and a half weeks in, she left the egg mass. And um, and when I opened the cage, I kind of knew that there was a couple bad eggs. I got a, a whiff of that, that odor that a bad egg makes. And um, she eventually left the clutch, so... I uh, pulled the egg mass from her, and I was able to cut out the bad eggs, which were five. So I had seven good eggs, and I put them in my incubator, and I hatched them in my chondro incubator. And amazingly, the diamond pythons hatched in that. So I hatched out seven diamond pythons in the middle of August. And um, It's amazing. You know, they're just – yeah, and, you know, I haven't hatched out any – 
Morelia and the Carpet Python side of things since the late 90s, and I've really forgotten <laughs> how big those babies are. Yeah. You know, they almost look like, you know, a seven- or eight-month-old chondro. Um, but but it, it's kind of neat because they're big, so you can, like, you know, my son and I are taking them out. We, you know, check them out and hold them and all that stuff, and they, they eat fuzzies. So they eat a, you yeah. know, a pretty good-sized meal. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's so, uh, it's so shocking. You know, you're used to feeding, like, small pinks to these baby condors or pink heads, <clears throat> and then you, you get a carpet. And I always started my carpets not on fuzzies, on hoppers. And nice. as small as they are, they they could take down a freaking live hopper mouse. It's amazing to watch, too. Yeah. Yep. Very cool. Well, um, first, I have two questions about that project. First of all, why in God's mind would you have wanted to maternally incubate? You've never maternally incubated a thing in your life. <laughs> uh, um, why? why? That's a good question. Um, it seems to be the thing you do with diamond pythons. Like, you know, really? like everyone I've talked to, a couple people that – have kind of mentored me with them. They're like, that's all we do. We just, we, you know, we maternally incubate. And and then uh, one of the guys that has walked me through the process, this year he had a female abandon the clutch, and he didn't have an incubator set up. And oh, um, he tried to, but he, that clutch completely collapsed. Um, so I tried it. And so um, I don't need to fail multiple times in order for something to change for me. So one time yeah. was enough. I will do maternal incubation again. Um, but, you know, it, it had a happy ending. Um, you yeah. know, it wasn't like the, the clutch completely died or the female, you know, came off the eggs and died. So, um, you know, yeah. seven cool like little Gary's. diamond python hatchlings. Yeah, right, like Gary's. So, like Gary's clutch. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, but, yeah, so I've got another pair that I'm going to try again um you know, going to do another pairing in the, the spring of uh, 2021, if we're still here. Um, so, you know, that, that, that that's a plan. Oh, fantastic, man. I, I always love to hear, uh, I always love to hear what's going on over there. You're, you're kind of a, you're, you're, you have a history of being a little bit of a recluse, you know, and like the social media and, <laughs> you know, just all sharing your projects and stuff like that. So it's always good to hear what's, what's, what's coming out of that facility. Right, yeah, that's you know snakes mostly, um, and teenage boys. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was the stuff, second man. question, Bill? Oh uh, shit, I don't remember. Okay, I don't remember the the maternal incubation was was what really had me scratching my head. Yeah, yeah, I tried, but you know. I learned my lesson. I, I, I know what this. I know what the second question is, and I'll make it real quick because we need to get moving. But um, how did you? I mean, I know kind of your setup. How did you cool? Did you brumate those diamonds, or did you cool them down excessively, or how did you get them to breed and produce eggs? Um, so what I start doing about three years ago is I have a area of my house. Um, it's actually a, the the breezeway that attaches to our garage into the main house and that room's heated, but we don't heat it at like room, like regular room temperature. So 
we keep it about 65 during a day, and at night we let it go down to 55. And so I started moving them in this room. I, I stopped feeding them um, right about this time of the year. I give them four to six weeks at uh, regular, you know, the area where I keep all my other snakes, which is like a background temp of 72 degrees, um, and they get a nice hot spot um, for however long the sun is up. That's how I run the hot spot in the cages. And, yep. and, um, and so, uh, I, you know, once I'm pretty sure they've most of the foods out of their system, I bring them to this room and I uh, do the same thing, but they're getting nighttime lows in the mid fifties, but they still have access to the hot spot. Um, and it's set up the same way so that when the, you know, when the sun comes up, the, the photo cell turns on the, the hot spot and, you know, it'll, they'll stay here. And then in um, in this room where actually I'm talking to you right now, and they stay in this room until March, um, until we hit about you know back to 12, 12 hours of daylight and sunlight. <clears throat> Excuse me, and uh, I move them back to the regular area, uh, resume feeding, and um, this year I resume feeding. Then I did introductions. So oh, okay, okay. That's what yeah. I, I plan to do the same again this year. Yeah. Well. Sounds like a good plan. It worked well for you. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy um, that it worked. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. All right. Why don't you introduce yeah. uh, Stephen and Ashley? I think w one or both may be uh, on. I, I see in the queue. It's, somebody's there. Okay, let's find out. Are we there? You are here. You Welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. Well, yes, right. we can hear you. Yeah, Amazing. <laughs> what a time to be alive. Hey, guys. And more. What's up? All good. So we have with us Ashley and Stephen Howd. Am I saying the name correctly? It's actually Howdy, comedically enough. Howdy. Actually, Howdy. Yeah. Howdy. Okay. Good tech. Yep. And good tech they. Today. That's yeah. an awesome name. We're, we're completely awesome. Um, it may, and it may, you know what? I like your name because it makes me smile when I say it. <laughs> I like that. Um, it gives me a lot of good good vibes and feeling about you, which is a good thing. Uh, but there you, you guys have a, a cage company. Um, it's called Focus Cubed Habitats. And um, so your website is Focus cubedhabitats.com and real nice mm -hmm. website. I like it. It's very clean, very pro looking. Um, I love the cages. I want to tell you right now, I really like the 30 by 15 by 15. I think that's a great size. I really, really like that. And so, you know, I might be buying a few of these from you guys in the future. I'm really looking at them that I'm actually in the market for some caging. So this is awesome. Well, I think that that size was one of the first ones we actually kind of perfected. When we started, we made a bunch of like terrible prototypes that didn't work out so good, and that was kind of the first like commercially viable unit we managed to finish. I think the first uh, reptile show we ever went to, we had like five of those things and one of those 24 cubes. So, I mean, that's technically that and the 24 cubes really what started it all. Yeah, the 24, and, and I mean, that's... You... Uh, go ahead, buddy. Yeah, well, so... It... What made you, what 
drove you to start a Cajun company? Was it you felt like there were just not the market wasn't there? Were you going for something that you thought that uh, you saw a niche and you could fill it, or how did that work out for you guys? Uh, hilariously enough, it's nothing that romantic. I mean, when we really started, like what what happened first was I was watching a guy on YouTube make these computer distro plates. So it's these actual, you know, acrylic components that you bolt together that are like a water reservoir to cool computer pieces. So I thought, you know what, I think I can do this. So I started watching his YouTube videos and I downloaded a program. I kind of started to teach myself how to do you know, CAD and CAM, and I was like, you know what, I'll buy a small CNC machine and see if I can make this little computer part. And by the time the machine showed up, I realized that my wife has at least 8 million animals here that needed a house, so I thought, you know what, I'll try and make a box. So we failed again and again and again trying to make these boxes, and just, you know, my continuous failure kind of it annoyed me. It kept pushing me forward to keep trying and trying. And I mean, the stuff evolved like super rapidly. And I mean, just me trying different stuff has kind of led to this today. And I was so obsessed with it. I never got around to making that computer part. And I've been making, you know, enclosures and enclosure pieces and accessories for, you know, well, essentially ever since I've just, I've not stopped. I mean, I keep trying to perfect something. So I go back and tweak a little here and a little there and just, you know, I, I just keep my head down at it, trying to make something different. Very nice. And um, yeah, that that's a great story. But uh, Stephen, we both know that Ashley is the brain behind the business. So maybe maybe she can like chirp in and say, you know, what what exactly she does, what exactly you do. Um, and you know, you guys have gotten so incredibly hot in the last few months. I know you recently vended the the Herp Show in Conroe, and it looked like you did great there. And you just you know, you can't crank out cages enough, and I, I want to talk about the quality and, of the cages and what makes the cages different, but what do you guys do specifically individually and together, and, you know, what kind of what makes your company go? Well, I've been doing uh, reptiles probably since mid-'90s, mid to early-'90s, so over 25 years ago. I've been a reptile nut, you know, since the beginning, one of the, our favorite stories that we tell about each other is we actually, uh, in, in like kindergarten, we grew up across the street from each other, basically. It was, you know, across kind of a, a highway type thing. But uh, we were at school one day, and um, Stephen, we were on the playground, and he saw this girl brandishing this, this animal. Uh, and he went, and there was a bunch of kids around, and uh, it turns out that it was me. I was brandishing a toad that was peeing on me. Um, and he's like... <laughs> And he said, yeah, it was like, oh, God, this girl's gross. It's like, well, I don't know why anybody would ever do that. And, you know, ever since then, we, we kind of, you know, went our di- different ways and, and everything managed to come together. And now we have a uh, <laughs> an entire home full of reptiles. And uh, we both, you know, have kind of fallen in love with the community and, and everything. But, yeah, I've I've been a reptile nut ever since the beginning. And I guess my passion for it has really, you know, kind of driven Stephen and I to, to create this this crazy business of of building these reptile enclosures and uh yeah it really just come came out of the need of dealing with a lot of different species and wanting to create something that was uh aesthetically pleasing as well as functional for the animal because 
one of the, as you guys know, um, some of these animals are so beautiful. We felt that, you know, something needed to be created to, to house them in that wasn't just, you know, a box or a tub. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I think that there's a, there's a niche market that's, that's available or that we are trying to fill of creating these custom habitats that people can really let their creativity run wild. You know, we all have a passion for these animals, so why not house them in something that's, that's kind of different? Uh, and Stephen's definitely the brainchild of the, the creative side, and I kind of work with the animals and, you know, the social media, and we kind of, we have a, I guess the team relationship there to where like he works, he runs the CNC machine, um, does all the CAD and the cam work and uh, 3D modeling. And then I kind of, I, I jump in with, you know, we'll tweak substrate layers here and there and ventilation and stuff like that, just to kind of perfect what we're trying to create here. Yeah, you've certainly proven that the demand is out there and we got to know each other because you know, I I get asked, you know, year after year, um, you know, somebody has a single neonate chondro, and they don't want to put it in a tub, you know, and and really until recently, a, a tub has been the best um, environment to put a new newly established baby green tree in, and you know, some people that just have one or two, they don't want to buy a rack in a, in a tub system, and so. I found you guys because you were producing something that nobody else was producing. And, you know, and it's a small, uh, it's a small cube cage, you know, for a baby established green tree. And so I wanted to, before I, you know, said, Hey, get, you know, uh, order one of these or get one of these. I wanted to check it out. And you guys sent me a one, I guess it's a 12 by 12 by 12 cube. I put a baby in there that had maybe had 10 meals or 15 meals, something that I would send out to a, to a new customer that's established. And I put it in that thing and it's just, it's done great. And just as important, it looks great. Well, a, a huge issue with an enclosure that's that small is actually getting heat in it accurately with a gradient. So that's kind of what we figured out. Like a larger enclosure, you can just throw a heat panel in there. You can kind of modulate it pretty easily. But, you know, a, a 12 cube is really tough to add heat because a traditional heat panel won't fit. And a lot of people will try and, you know, tape heat tape to the back of it or to the bottom of it. And, you know, that stuff's trying to make its way through half-inch PVC, which is essentially an, an insulator, so it just doesn't work. So like on that, that little matrix, that 12 by 12 by 12 we have, we've actually got an integrated heated back. So we've machined most of that half-inch back out. That little pocket inside there holds – it's a layer of fiberglass screen. It holds a 12-inch uh, heat tip, heat tape strip. It holds, uh, it's, I think, two strips of uh, vermiculite-coated fiberglass, and it has a PVC cover on the back. So it's this, like, integrated heated back that allows for a thermal gradient, and, you know, the animal still can't get to it. It's not like an exposed heat panel or, or just a bunch of heat tape tapped to the, taped to the back of it. So, I mean, it, it, right. it works super good. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's just phenomenal. It's totally... Uh, groundbreaking i'd never seen anything like it before the functionality and the aesthetics of it you know when i saw it i was just like and the great thing is you shipped it assembled in a box um and 
there was no, you know, the light was in it, the purchase came with it, and it was literally just take it out of the box and hook it up to a thermostat, and you're good to go. And it's kind of funny, the last, you know, probably month or so, we've actually leveled that up a bit. So we actually have that same unit now that has a thermostat that is integrated in a false floor um, that controls that heated back. So essentially, if you purchase one and you receive it all assembled, literally all you do is you plug the thermostat cord into a wall, you set your temperature, and it's ready to rip. So, I mean, the thermostat probe is run. The heated back is already assembled. It's silicone. The perches are in it. All you do is hang those two perches. You plug it in, and you turn it on. I mean, it doesn't get any easier. Man, plug and play, man. It's just mm-hmm. it's amazing. And that's what people that's want. That's my style. Like the amount of people who've contacted us are like <laughs> – there seems to be a lot of new people. So it's you – know, a lot of folks don't know quite what to do, and they're just looking to, to click a button and receive a setup that works. And that's what we're trying to, I guess, cater to. All the new people who don't quite know what's going on, they don't have to you know, be so worried about trying to take care of these super expensive animals and figure out, well, how do I do heating in this little enclosure? You know, How do I do purchase? Yep. What kind of material can I use? This thing here, it shows up in your – you know, your your front porch, and you just turn it on. Yeah. I mean, I can't say enough good stuff about it, and I'm super excited to meet you guys. I'm going to meet you guys this weekend um, and pick up a couple of the 2 by 2 by 2 cubes to put some sickness babies in and give those things a run, and I cannot wait. Well, dude, we're super excited about those. Yeah. I mean, we have been like – I've come up with probably like – Ten different designs in my head of what I wanted to do for those two, and I've scrapped all of them. I kept going back and forth, and and I finally settled on the the two that I sent you know photos to you of. I don't know if you want me to talk about them or not, but they're they are super super neat, and no cube has been done like them before. Uh, they're super super tough, and they look freaking awesome. I mean, they are another level beyond what we've already built. Yeah, you sent me the pictures of them, and you can talk them up all you want. And I know you've got some uh, unique perches um, in mind for them as well. Yeah, the two units that we've built for you, they've got acrylic fronts. Each of them do. So essentially it's a PVC enclosure. It has a half-inch uh, PVC front that's inset internally, and the fronts are actually sheeted with – one of them has uh, a tinted acrylic, and the other one has uh, – it's frosted acrylic. And a big thing for you was to not use an acrylic or a poly door. We've actually integrated a swing-out glass door that has a PVC surround that that glass door is inset into. So you get the yeah. I wanted the same, the, I, you know, I wanted that. Yep, I wanted the glass door, and you guys were able to do that. Well, the big problem with the glass door is it's tough to see and see. I mean, the, the way that our doors are made, they're super intricate. It's a lot of machine time. There's a lot of radius. There's a lot of angles, and that's just not something you can achieve with glass. So that's kind of been my big holdup on doing glass. It's not you know necessary for everyone, um, but it's super cool to be able to have it. And the way that we've done it, you get to keep the same aesthetic. You get to keep the same kind of door closers. Um, it looks just as good, and it's glass. So, I mean, you don't have to – worry about beating it up over the years and years and years yeah getting scratched and such yeah the first couple ones we built we used acrylic and you quickly discover that acrylic for a front door it's tough to do because acrylic does not like heat and humidity on one side and you know dry cool air on the other side they kind of curl and warp a bit so we switched to polycarbonate 
which help with that dramatically. They don't bend, they don't warp. Um, but if you're looking for glass, it's you know it's, it's just a different thing. But having the uh, polycarbonate door allows for a lot of visibility. It looks super mm. trick, and it fits with like our screw closers and all that kind of stuff. So there's a bit of a trade-off there, but the polycarbonate does work super super good. Wow, that's really super cool. high end. Really cool. Super super high tech. I know Buddy had a question about one of your other products. We we do need to get Stephen on here pretty quick since it's his show. But I know Buddy uh, had a a question about one of your other products. Sure, go for it. Actually, it's more of a comment. Um, I love the fact that you guys are making available Exoterra aftermarket uh, tops. That's like people go for those all the time with uh, you know animals, particularly chondros, because they can go to the you know they can go to a local pet store and they can purchase them or they can pick them up at a reptile show. Um, but they struggle with uh, the screen tops, and you guys have. Uh, Replacement tops, which uh, if, if I was going to do an Exoterra, I would be, you know, going to your website and I'd be ordering the replacement top. So my chondro would be a little bit happier in that Exoterra as opposed to that screen top. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, that has been a, a huge hit for us. So many people contact us who have, you know, older collections. That was, you know, all you had a few years ago. The PVC stuff is still new to a lot of people. So, you know, and like you say, everybody can go to, you know, whatever big local pet store and they can buy these glass enclosures. But, I mean, to keep any kind of heat or humidity in, I mean, the tops are covered in duct tape and, you know, different kind of reflective, you know, HVAC tape. It just looks awful um, and it doesn't work real good. So I was like, you know what? We have some of those units here that we need to uh, kind of bring into the, you know, the new millennia. And sure enough, we designed these tops and they worked out super good. So, Mostly, we've got like cord slots, so if you want to attach like a RHP or a you know a grow light or like a UVB or whatever underneath, they'll simply screw into the unit, and you have the cord pass-throughs. Uh, they have you know, I guess kind of semi-minimalistic ventilation, so you can kind of keep the humidity in there, and they retain heat. So I mean, they they work super good. It's helped a ton of people stabilize temperature and humidity in those glass units. So it's been super popular. And we're working on some now for, like, uh, you know, dart frogs and stuff that need, like, maybe an LED grow light. So we've got in the top, you know, we, we can integrate you know, an, an acrylic top or something. So you can let light pass through there and, you know, keep your plants alive and the animals happy too while you still remain or retain humidity, I guess I should say. That's awesome. It's a lot of, that's great forward thinking and ingenuity, that's for sure. It's, it's just what people need. I mean, we get – that's how we design stuff. People say, hey, I need this, and that's how we figure it out. When we you know, design a new unit, we do all the testing we can here, and pretty much all of our early adopters have been super cool, super cool people. Um, if we need to update a design or change something, they let us know, and we work back and forth with the customer. It's not like a, you know, I know everything, and this is how I build stuff, and this is how you're going to get it. Uh, we welcome feedback. If there's something that needs to be changed or updated or modified, we try and integrate that stuff into future products so it's kind of best for everybody. So we're definitely open to to learning new stuff all the time. That's awesome. 
Stephen and Ashley, I can't thank you enough uh, for giving us and the listeners a few minutes of your time explaining your product and uh, look forward to meeting you guys this weekend. And uh, again, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on and chatting for a few minutes. For sure. Thanks for having us. I mean, it's been super cool. Yeah, thank you. We really appreciate thank the invite. <laughs> Do you, you guys, guys, you guys really have a give great a real, oh, Go ahead. You guys want to give a real quick shout out? I gave your website, but where else can you be found? Uh, you can find us on Facebook or Instagram. So it's just Focus Cubed Habitats. You can search that stuff, and we're pretty much the only one out there under that name, so we're not too awful hard to find. Um, and if you want to, like, talk to us, you can message us through any one of those things. We've got some brand-new gigantic phones to try and keep up with all the messages and demands. So, you know, message us through Facebook or through Instagram. If you go onto our website, you can – you know, we've got a big link that says send us a message. So just talk to us. We've got a lot of stuff going on. So if there's something you want that you don't see on the website, uh, just let us know, and we can probably make it happen. So we are totally open to communication for sure. Great. Thank you. Thanks, guys. We'll see you. You guys have a good night. Yep. Thank you. You'll do yep. the same. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye. Good stuff, yeah, I Bill. Mean, just next, next generation in caging, man. I mean, you know, you and I have been keeping animals in the same boxes for a long time, and there, there's nothing wrong with that. I think there's a lot of other um, reliable um caging companies out there that produce a good product and have good good customer support this to me just seems like next level wow yeah i'm excited to see your cages when they come in yeah me too god i can't wait cool all right so we're ready to bring our next guest on Let's get my boy on. Another Texas boy. Okay. All right. I can't wait to talk to this cat. It's like a Texas night tonight. It is kind of, yeah. We're not only Texas, this is a Houston night. Both these, both these, uh, yeah, both these, both these, uh, people, couple, Steven, Steven and Ashley, they're all from Houston. Nice. I like Houston. Houston's a shithole. Don't let it fool you. (laughs) I like. I've been to the rodeo. I went to the Houston rodeo, Bill. I mean, you can't be more legit than spending time at the Houston rodeo. I'm. I'm just kidding. I have to say that because I live in Dallas, man. I love Houston. Okay, My gotcha. sister lives there. Right. My sister lives there. I've got in-laws there. I'm heading there this weekend, and and, and can't can't wait to have a great three-day weekend. Okay. All right. <laughs> Stephen, how are you? Drum roll. Drum roll. Hey guys, how's it going? <laughs> We've got a large going well tonight. Yeah. All wearing their masks and properly social distancing, <laughs> I should say. You know, you know, but you can't you know, you know what I do for a living, so I have to make sure I I include that. Buddy? We said we were not going to bring yes. politics into the conversation, this and you is, no, immediately this, this come off. You immediately come off with a mass comment. <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. This is this is uh, this is a public health statement. You know, this could be this could be my career on the line. Oh my God, <laughs> uh, my eyes are watering already. <laughs> Stephen, how are you, buddy? 
I'm doing good. How's it going, guys? Doing good. You're a busy man. Thanks for coming on. I mean, I, you know, you, you got a freaking baby, a five-month-old, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, he's uh, he's he's a handful. He's he's big, beautiful, healthy. Couldn't ask for any more than that. Happy all the time. Yeah, you're super blessed, man. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Congrats. Yeah. So I, so Stephen and I know each other. We've met in person at least a couple times, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. So uh, we've met at the NRBC in Arlington. Um, I, I, you know, met your wife at the time she was, I think the last time I saw her, she was pregnant. You guys had not even had your baby yet, but, um, but buddy, you have not met buddy, which is a a tragedy. And, um, you know, I think probably a lot of listeners may or may not know anything about you. So why don't you like, give us a little intro about, you know, who you are and what you've done. I, I will just say that you know we wanted to have you on the show because you're one of the moderators of the largest Facebook group uh concerning green tree pythons and so that's uh that's a chore that's a task that's a passion and so with that kind of prelude why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself well uh i'd say probably most people have at least heard of me at this point or know who i am very involved in the online social media community surrounding green tree pythons. Um, But relatively new, I only got into these guys maybe the end of 2017. Um, I've always been a reptile, animal, nature enthusiast. I was the the regular Dennis the Menace kind of kid, always going out and catching lizards, catching frogs, keeping them in jars and, you know, uh, observing for a little while and letting them go. Probably my my earliest fascination with reptiles was my older brother having a uh, Cali king snake when I was really young and just always extremely fascinated by them, ancient, prehistoric, vibrant colors, beautiful. Um and later on, uh, I was starting to collect my own stuff. Uh, throughout my teenage years, I had, at one point, probably over 30 different species of reptile and amphibian at my house. Just a veritable Noah's Ark with no real uh, goal in mind for any of it other than just personal enjoyment. Um, but then I had my first child. Uh, when I was real young, 19, and I kind of had to take a step back from the hobby and, uh, you know, be a dad and, and grow up a little myself. And finally, in 2017, I was really settled down, had my own house and financially stable and decided it was time to get back in. And first thing I grabbed was a couple things I was familiar with, a uh, leopard gecko and uh, some dark frogs. But I decided I wanted to try something new, something I had always wanted but never ventured for because, you know, the price point and everything and the horror stories surrounding them kind of keep you away. But, you know, funny enough, that bright yellow uh, neonate, green tree python, was what really drew me in. I I had to have one of these things. 
Uh, Yellow. So like every. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk about that. So, we'll talk about that later. Yeah, Don't we'll talk tell about Pedro. that. Later. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I started off kind of like everyone else. You know, I, I I got a glass Exoterra. I got some heat lamps. I got a imported uh, Bushmaster Manaquari, and Waterfall? I had no. Huh? Did you have a water? Uh, I actually. <laughs> I'll do you one better. I had fish at the bottom. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I quickly after that, I I, uh, picked up Greg Maxwell's book, The More Complete Chondro. And that's what I think really just kind of lit the fire. You know, the way he writes, just so much passion and and it's just so well written. You just kind of get sucked into that world. And, uh, you know, and, and some of the things that he talked about in there the, and getting into the breeding and the, and the pairing. And I was like, I, I got to do this. I got to be a part of this, you know? So, uh, I started digging in more and more and, you know, green tree pythons are actually really difficult to find information on. Uh, so it, it took a lot of painstaking energy and footwork to find things like the old MVF and, and just go digging through there with the search bar and, and through all of uh, Matthew Morris and David Newman's uh, work that they did on there with all of the uh, husbandry basics and the helpful links. And yeah. And, and, and then through all that, I ended up finding uh, the Facebook forums and that was it. I was home, you know, not only had I found a, a species that I really, really fell in love with and felt passionate about, but then I found a insanely awesome community of of keepers and breeders that that freely shared their knowledge and and uh, shared in each other's successes and and they shared in each other's losses and it, it was just so cool, you know, and and uh, that's that's kind of history in a nutshell. Uh, once I found that, I just dug deeper and dug deeper. Um, just doing things, all the videos, all the podcasts. I found you guys, uh, GTP keeper radio. And honestly, a huge portion of the success that I've had with this species so far can be attributed to this podcast right here. You know, I'm in, I'm incredibly honored and humbled to have even been invited because I mean you guys have had legends on on this show you've had Trooper Walsh you've had Greg Maxwell you know Daniel Natouche all these these people you've had doctors on here and you know here I am you know three three years and something into keeping these animals and I'm in here talking to celebrities um well, so. uh, well, thank thank you for the for the kind words and and you know you're you're right. I mean, we have had you know the the really just everybody in the condor community, you know, is th- that has contributed from really from the beginning and you know in, the, in Trooper and and Rico and and the early generation guys that started it and you know then we moved into second, third and fourth generation people that continue the passion and, you know, and you're, you're kind of next in line because of, you know, just the audience that you have and, you know, the work that you've done on the Facebook group. And, and, and I know we want to talk about that later, 
But I did want to ask you, you mentioned Greg Maxwell and, and you read his book. Um, who who else were your kind of mentors getting started or did you did you even have a mentor? Did you just follow the book and you mentioned the MVF? Did you have somebody that you know, maybe local or that wasn't local that you bounced stuff off of? I did do an incredible amount of digging on my own um, and using search bars, looking up questions, uh, listening. I've probably listened to every episode of this podcast at least three times, just soaking in all the information from these people that have been doing it for decades. And, um, but early on, I did have the help of a few people that kind of stand out as people that really kind of shaped my trajectory into the community and, kind of where I'm at now with my collection and, and where I'm at um, with the Facebook group and the work that I do on a daily basis, helping people and connecting people to the information they need. And I'd say some of the early people was uh, Gary Scavino. Uh, He's always been a great resource and really helped me guide me through some of my earlier transactions so that I was kind of, on the right track for what I was wanting to do. And then another would be Harlan Wall, who, I mean, you guys have talked to him uh, a few very lengthy phone conversations in. And, man, I had I had uh, the entire history of not just the animals and where they come from and, and ev- the ins and outs of their husbandry and care and, and everything, but also about the community and the history there and, and the connections and relationships and some of the other gaps that I hadn't had filled in. And and after that, um, Patrick Holmes has been one of my big-time go-tos anytime I have a question because he's just got an encyclopedic knowledge of these animals. Just He's got every answer on his fingertips at the touch of a button. And then uh, lastly, I would say Stephen Brown for uh, kind of noticing the uh, potential with me and how much I loved helping people and how involved I was with the groups and, and kind of taking me under his wing a little bit and helping me with some of the husbandry and then pulling me into the uh, moderators and, and being an admin for the group because he, he felt like I was just a young version of him and all the passion, it's all the love. Yeah, Stephen's been around for a, a long. He's been around for a long, long time. Do you know Stephen? Yes, buddy. I know the name, but I don't know him personally. He's in. Uh, he's in South Texas as well, right, Stephen? Yeah, he's. Uh, he's over here in the area. I think he's a little bit closer to you guys, actually, though. Oh really? But yeah, those those guys are stand out, and I mean that list could really go on for a long time because everybody sure. in the community is just so helpful and has shared so much information, and I've I've really made just so many relationships and connections and friendships. I I just I could probably go all night with just people who've helped me in the last three years. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I We want to talk about the Facebook group, but before we do that, I wanted to ask you a, a couple questions. F- 
first of all, maybe you could give us an overview of what you're keeping right now, um, collection-wise. You know, uh, what, what are you keeping? Well, uh, I'm not the only snake keeper in this house, so my girlfriend actually <laughs> has that. a bunch of stuff herself. And when we uh, finally got our our place together last year, uh, our snake collections kind of combined. So now we've got retics, we've got royals, we've got uh, colubrids, kings, corns, and then my beloved chondros. Uh, I think we have a total of 27 snakes in the house right now, ever growing. Um, nice. As far as as far as chondros. Uh, People may not be aware, but I actually only have eight of them at my house. Uh, I have another on the way soon from Patrick Holmes and a couple more in the works that I've kind of got to say hush-hush about until that happens. But, <laughs> yeah, I only, have, uh, I only have actually eight here in the snake room. Well, tell us what they are. I know you – I mean, you've got – You've got an, uh, at least a couple or more than a couple incredible animals um, that I'm familiar with. Yeah, the I mean, honestly, I've I've really been um, meticulous and very patient about the animals that I picked for the project that I want to do and work with. And funny enough, it was uh, it was. Uh, Buddy Buscemi himself that kind of set me on that on that path. I don't know if you guys recall, but um, I think it was maybe three, four years back, at least, if not more. Uh, Bill, you asked Buddy, uh, what would you do if you wanted to get into blue line stuff, and you, you know, you didn't necessarily have the budget to get the highest highest end stuff all the time, and. He's like, well, you know what? I'd I'd be over there knocking on Gary Scavino's door and trying to get one of those uh, manicori. So manicori, yeah, that, yeah. So that kind of got me started in the trajectory I am now. I I got another uh, red neonate manicori, and then I jumped right into some blue blue line stuff. And you know, enough can't be said. You guys were already talking about it earlier, but you can't beat black and blue. So basically everything that I have in my collection, even though I would like to do some designer to designer pairings and I'd like to do some pure Manaquari stuff, everything that I have was kind of meant to be cohesive so that really no matter what I pair to what, it's a win. And it all will have yeah. the potential for black and blue and yellow diamonds and, you know, the different degrees but uh the whole thing is meant to be cohesive i've i've seen too many stories from people that just got a pair of these a pair of that a pair of this you know and they've got all these different projects and you know chondros do what chondros do and they go belly up and then all of a sudden that whole project is scrapped um so i really wanted to to have mine work uh together no matter what if I lost one, I can still keep moving. But yeah, I have I have a little bit of everything here. I've I've really uh, targeted a lot of stuff like SH five one eight eight. I'm sure you guys are familiar with that animal. Um, yeah, one of my all time favorites. Um, 
Mr. Blue Carolina, Blue Max Jarvis. Um, I've tracked down stuff from Sky and Fiji, uh, Sky Topaz. I've gotten some uh, Vinsky Blue Line. I've got stuff from Greg Maxwell, stuff that came from Trooper, stuff from um, Rico, just all the all the best of the best genetics. And I've been very patient and meticulous with how I've collected it. So that's, that's actually why I don't have more. There's, there's many I've passed up because they, they wouldn't fit perfectly with what I'm trying to do. Yeah. That, that's a Dave D animal, right? Is that right? Which one? Uh, Singularity, the one and yeah. only, the the man, the myth, the legend. Yeah, he's uh, he's definitely the priciest in the bunch. He's he's got an extreme background. He's uh, Versace Calico Junior Daydream times Mister Blue Carolina Blue Max Jarvis. His um, the dam of that clutch is actually hit for albino as well. So hmm. some good stuff in there. Did you wrestle that one away when it was a red baby or when it had started changing? Uh, I got that one when it was almost solid black and we weren't sure if it was going to go blue or green when the black started to recede. Um, so I, I kind of, no. I took a chance and uh, it, it paid off. That's an incredible, incredible animal. And it's really a a perfect example of the phenotype that I'm trying to, uh, shoot for here and stuff that I produce. Fantastic, man. Very good. Very focused. I like it. Yeah, well, so, thanks to you guys for kind of uh, keeping me on the path. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I, for some reason, I always get off that path. I don't know why. I just, I just <laughs> I have never found a chondro I didn't like. I guess that's a problem. <laughs> so, <laughs> Steve, tell us, you know, how did you become involved with your, with your Facebook group, the Green Tree Pythons? I mean, just like anyone, I joined the group and I, I started talking to people and getting involved and and uh, something I remembered. Greg's Ma- Greg Maxwell talking about in, in the more complete chondro was it really stuck with me is don't just show up when you have, you know, something to offer when you have babies for sale, get involved, help, you know, make contributions to the community. And so that's what I kind of set out to do from the beginning. And um, having done all of the legwork that I did to kind of find all these different little gems hidden away on YouTube, hidden away and the MVF or on this site or that site, you know, that kind of, that kind of became a, a secondary passion of mine was kind of passing that on to people who were starting off the same as me. They had no idea what was going on. They're completely lost. They don't know where to go, who to turn to, what to believe about, humidity and light bulbs or radiant heat panels, uh, heat tape, just so many different options, so many opinions, so much out there. And, you know, I, I, I just got involved and tried helping new people catch them up to kind of where I was, where, you know, they could get a 
green tree python and bring it home and successfully keep it alive. And um, that's what really got me started in that group. And, you know, Stephen Brown had been running that group by himself for a while and was kind of having a hard time keeping up with everything as the group grew and grew and grew. And um, he, he pulled me aside one day and asked me what I thought about helping him out. And I was like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm all for it. I, it's just a, it's, it's awesome being able to help other people and see them come back with the success stories or an animal that was having trouble shedding or, or doing uh, odd behaviors or not eating and, and you help them and they come back and they're like, it worked. My animal's doing so much better. Thank you. You know, and I know that not only is that person uh, feel better, feel more comfortable, but that animal is, is in a better situation. Um that that really is has been a like I said a secondary passion aside from the love of the animals is the love of helping others and and getting them started on the right track so that they can come in and be confident and really just kind of expand our hobby that we love. The more people that are successful, then the more people can breed them and the more people that can share our hobby with and that's all good. Yeah, that's awesome. Um that and it that's a great uh feeling to have that and I'll tell you you talked about Daniel and the Touche earlier and when Daniel was here in the States um seven years ago or something, we were we were talking and I've I've talked about this in the past and he just said he was completely amazed how open and sharing not just chondro keepers but all keepers were in the united states the culture here was you know if you have success you share how you're successful and um that way other people can be successful where he said the culture in his home country was you have success you keep the the secret of your success close to you and you don't share it that way you're the only person being successful and it but it doesn't foster the the community aspect of it it's more of a yeah. singular purpose as opposed to uh, bettering the community so it's definitely interesting and it's great there there are people like yourself who are willing to you know take the time get people on the right track make sure they're successful um that way they enjoy the hobby. I mean, I'm sure you, moderating uh, a large forum like you do, um, you know, you probably have encountered people who have had really bad experiences and, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it's almost shut them down to the hobby. And uh, that's that's mm-hmm. not what we want. We We want them to be successful. We want them to enjoy what they're doing and not be stressed out about it and mm-hmm. uh and so that they can you know spread then their passion to other people as well absolutely so you know i, I moderate a forum too a couple of forums on facebook um so i it's really a unique experience on facebook um 
than it was years ago on the MVF, the Morelia Virtus Forum, when we were doing like a typical forum yeah. type board scenario. And um, I think, uh, you know, it's really challenging, at least my personally for me, because I'll get, you know, I don't see everything that happens. I'm sure you're the same way. You're, you sound like you're a very busy young family. You don't see everything that happens, but you'll maybe get a report that, you know, something's going on on your, the group that you moderate, and they want you to take a look at it, and you need to get involved. And, um, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's really hard to figure out, like, you know, I, you you could read this in one way and say, yeah, I see that there could be some bad intent here, but, you know, maybe if I look at it in a different aspect, maybe they're just, it's not bad intent. Maybe they're just clar- trying to clarify, and maybe they just don't come across well when they write. And so, um, you know, you have to look at all those aspects. It's really difficult to be like both uh, jury and judge in those situations. Yeah. How how do you handle that type of stuff? I mean, honestly, I I really, the entire group is really geared towards the newcomer, the the person who is lost. And I think it's because of the name of the group, Green Tree Python, Morelia Veritas. I mean, it's very cut and dry. And because of the number of people in there, it's the first one that people will click on to join. So we by far get the largest number of uh, newcomers joining. And so it's just a constant stream of, of helping people get started in the hobby. And so a lot of that forum is really geared towards that. And so a lot of my decisions, good or bad, love or hate, is kind of uh, geared towards how is that newcomer going to uh, digest this? How are they going to be able to to sift through the, the the nonsense or the inexperience or or the flat out lies or you know? So a lot of what we do with uh, the whole. PDF that I created and pinned to the top and the mentorship program that we have in the group um, so that people can contact people who've been uh, involved for a long time. And um, we keep a little bit tighter ship than you guys do on the MVF just because, you know, a lot of the guys that move to the MVF, they've already been around for a while. They, they're a little bit more refined. They have a little bit more skills. They kind of know the ins and outs just a little bit. So, um, we really try to tread lightly for those newcomers and and make the decisions that are in the group's best interest and not the individuals. Um, and I know yeah, some people love point. that and some people hate it. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. You can't make everybody happy. Just... Yeah. No, not when you have, what, 16,000 people in the group or – whatever you guys have in that group now, Um, you know, and and just listen, listening to you talk, it just makes me go back to, you know, the post that is probably the most common. And, and again, you're, you just hit the nail on the head in that group. It tends to be a lot of people that come in and they're asking for resources after they've purchased their animal and it's not doing well. Right. I mean, that's, yeah, that, that's a, a, you know, good part of the questions there. And so how do you, how do you keep your sanity, you know, answering 
the same questions over and over. It's some of the posts, it's like you don't even know where to begin. You know, they've they brought in the wrong animal. They brought in the wrong animal from the wrong source, and they put it in the wrong box, and they don't understand why why it's struggling. So it's you know, I just, it's honestly it's it's something that I'm working on constantly, and and being a moderator of such a large group has really helped me grow not only as a keeper but as a leader and, and how to deal with people and de-escalate situations. And it's something I'm always working on and still continuing to grow in. And we never stop growing or learning. So it's, it's always evolving and changing, but you know, you do the best you can to treat each person as an individual and, and their situation as something that's detrimental to their animal and to their Sanity and you know I really enjoy the the stories when they come back and I get people all the time that are messaging me in private because they don't like posting you know we help them through these little issues and things that are driving them crazy and keeping them up at night and they come back and their animals doing better and it's it's a really good feeling it's it's very much a sense of accomplishment and you know uh, I can't I don't own a CNC machine to make fancy cages and I don't I'm I'm not going to be writing a book anytime soon and I'm certainly not the uh the um original person that bred them in in the US and I'm I'm not a lot of things but what I can do is I can offer help to people who are new and they're lost and their animal is in trouble um, what would so I mean? Just, what I do. Just off the top of your head, like, what's like one of the craziest stories you've heard about somebody either messaging you privately or posting on on the forum? Like, what is just something so even made you shake your head? <laughs> uh, I just got this neonate yesterday. Uh, I've tried to feed it three times. It won't eat. <laughs> It's it's moving down from the heat lamp onto the deer antler. I was really hoping that it would use the deer antler um, as a perch, so I'm really happy about that. Uh, our handling sessions aren't going so well so far, um, but I'm just wondering what so I, I could do to get it to eat. So I assist fed it. So I assist fed it. Yeah. And that's it so well. <laughs> and no, this is that was an actual story. So that that really? was a real scenario. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, I know. Um, I mean, I, I yeah. I've only seen a fraction of what you've seen there. Um and it's so different than the old days of the MVF. Um and we'll talk about the MVF later because that was wasn't still as such a rich source. Um but boy, I tell you what, if you posted on the MVF back in the day, you better have your ducks in a row. You better have your, you know, spelling and pronunciation and grammar correct. Yeah. And, you know, I remember the first couple times I posted there, I was just, I was scared, you know, to to make a post yeah. there. And, and, you know, because those guys in the community would really, you know, hold you to a high standard. And, and I'm not saying that you don't do that on on the facebook but it's just it's different you know yeah no we we definitely have the training wheels on over there um 
but that's that's just kind of that's kind of the instant gratification era that we're in. You know, people pull their phone out of their pocket and they can ask anybody from anywhere all over the world any question they need an answer to, uh, and they expect it right then and there. And yeah, instead of instead of know. doing the work, right? Yeah, and yeah. you know, I've I've really tried to to pull together those resources and make it really simple, you know, for people to at least get started. I'm, I'm not yet uh, an accomplished breeder. Uh, I can't offer you uh, advice on really in-depth medical questions or any of that, but as far as how to get a quality animal, get it home, put it into a good environment where it's going to thrive for you, that I can do. And that's kind of what I've focused on helping people with. And that's what made me create that little PDF uh, for newcomers, little research tool. And it was kind of a, I wanted to just kind of redo a little bit what they did on the old MVF with all of those helpful links and, and husbandry stuff, but just kind of updated and formatted for Facebook because that's where everyone was coming. Everyone wasn't coming to the MVF. Everyone's coming to Facebook. Um, yeah, for sure. And they need help. Yeah, for sure. One of the big things that you get asked a lot about on that, and which is controversial a little bit, is um, the bioactive setup. And when yeah. I say that, I say that most 90% of the people that come on there, when they say bioactive, they have no idea what they're talking about. They just want something that looks naturalistic. Yeah. So, you know, I know you answer a lot of those questions and for the majority of people, especially new keepers, a bioactive or a naturalistic uh, enclosure setup is not the best way to have the highest probability of your green tree doing well um, but yeah. having said that there, there there are ways to do it correctly and I know that there have been you know some some discussions about that topic mm-hmm. yeah I mean some of my opinions uh, are not favorable to everybody but it's all taken into account that you know I read every single post that goes into the group. I read every single comment on every single post that goes into the group. And you do that enough times over, you start to really see patterns of problems and, and success. Uh, and the people that are the most successful are people that are keeping them clean. Uh, and the people that are not successful have a lot of similar things and it's always exoterras, glass tanks, green tops, heat bulbs, bioactive, waterfalls. And it's just, it's not a good scenario for someone who not only doesn't know the species, but probably doesn't know how to keep that ecosystem alive either. Um, yeah. And my opinion, honestly, if, if you are at the point where you can handle having a chondro and a bioactive or semi-bioactive enclosure, you're not going to be on the forum asking me about it. You're going to be doing it and showing people your success. Um, That's a good point. So, yeah, so when people come on and they ask you about it, and my assumption is 
this is someone who has no idea. They've never had a green tree python before. They're probably going to go buy bromeliads from the garden at Home Depot and put a bunch of uh, worms and mites and nematodes and, and tons of biohazards into the cage, and it's not going to go well for them. And, and the same goes for uh, imports in the hands of somebody that has no idea what they're getting into, you know, in the hands of someone who's very experienced with the animals and not, a, not an issue. They already know what to expect. They know what to do. They know to get fecal exams. They know how to deal with injection uh, or oral dosages. Uh, they're not, they're not going to be surprised and they're, they're not going to fail to take care of those things and then wonder why it died six months later. So there again, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's 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 kind of catering to the newcomer and um, doing what's in the best interest of them. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, you know how I keep stuff. You know how Buddy keeps stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I would, you know, never tell, you know, somebody to to not keep it in that environment if they were having success with it. But like you said, mm-hmm. most of the people, they come on and they're not really asking before they set it up. They're asking after they've set it up and they're not having success. That's most of the posts yeah. on your Facebook yep. page, you know? Um, so, and, yeah. and people just have to understand with bio, it's just an added level of, of chances you're taking. There's more chance for it to get a mouthful of substrate. There's more chance for its dermal pits to get clogged up. There's more of a chance for water blisters and skin infections and respiratory infections. And it's just a lot of gambling that not everyone is okay with, especially for the kind of money you pay for these animals. Not when you can make something beautiful with a focus tube habitat and some some silk plants and, and uh Torch PVC or something, and it can look, you know, kick ass without having all those risks. Yeah, for sure. It's um, it's one of the nice things about being able to, as a breeder and somebody that sells green trees, is I can vet my customers. Um, and you know, we have mm-hmm. very lengthy discussions about how they're going to keep these animals and. Uh, you know, I would I would never sell a first time person somebody that said they're going to put it in XO with substrate live plants and a waterfall. I just I said no. You know, it's, it's yep. not going to happen. Um, yeah. So, you know, luckily there's that. But on the other end, you know, you got ten times as many people that are selling it expos that they don't ask you know ask a question that just gets sold in the deli cup. Yeah. But, you know, that, that brings me to another good point is, you know, I've been asked a lot of times, how do I get these animals, these extraordinary specimens that I have in my collection? And, you know, how do you, how do you even obtain them? I can't find anything. There's such a shortage everywhere. No one has anything. And when they do, it's all in secret and behind closed doors. And, you know, how do I even get a hold of these things? And I tell them, everything matters. I mean, this is as much passion and art as it is business and uh, pleasure. So everything matters, your husbandry, how you are perceived by the community, 
you know, the level of competence you show in your involvement in the community. And it all matters when you're going to try and talk someone out of a really nice animal. You know, if no one's ever heard of you and has no idea what you're capable of or what kind of cage you're going to keep it in, and you come at them wanting a high-end specimen that you're going to stick in a glass cage with a waterfall and, and isopods, it's just not going to happen. Um, yeah, I think that's safe. So you, I mean, what about you, buddy? Yeah. But I mean, buddy, you, you know, you've been you've been uh, producing and selling chondros for a lot longer than I have, and longer than most people, um, you know, that are dealing with them. I, do you vet your buyers? Um, I do, and that's you know. So I will say that a lot of my sales the past several years have been repeat customers. So before I even, you know, you, you hatch a clutch, you get them established, you start thinking, okay, um, may make some animals available. Um, people reach out and say, hey, buddy, you know, I bought this animal from you uh, two years ago. It's doing great. I'd like to get another animal. What do you have available? And so those folks, to me, get top priority because, you know, they've purchased from me in the past. And so, you know, a lot of those customers are already vetted, but if someone comes up and says, hey, I'm looking for this or I'm looking for that, um, and I don't recognize the name. So if I've, I've, someone, you know, reaches out and I've seen them, you know, they've shown pictures of their animals and stuff like that, I assume, okay, well, this person at least does now, is keeping green tree pythons. So they, they have that experience level. But if I don't know anything about them, I normally do ask, are you currently keeping them? What's your experience level? Um, and that type of stuff. And, you know, it's um, – and not that that's a bad thing. Not that I would never say, well, you've never kept a condor before. I'm not going to, you know, send a snake to you. Sure. It's just, sure. you know, let's just make sure before this transaction goes down that, you know, you're ready to go because, you know um, – and you know this, Bill, that there's a, there's a lot of effort put into establishing babies um, and then, you know – someone in my situation where I have a very large collection of chondros and only two of them um, are not animals that I actually produce. So there's, you know, I have like, you know, animals are now fourth generation been in my, in, you know, in my care, you know, I raised the great, great grandparents and, you know, these are offspring from those animals and we've gotten this far. So there, there is some, you know, I wouldn't say like emotional attachment, but I want to make sure the animal does well. I want to make sure the person does well because I don't want them to have a bad experience. Um, you know, I want them to be super happy and, and successful, and that way they can, you know, move on to different, uh, you know, condors from somebody else. So, yeah, I do do some vetting if, if I don't recognize the name immediately. And it, sometimes it happens, though, like someone will reach out with an email and I'm sure you guys have had this experience. And um, you don't know the person, but like, oh, uh, on Facebook, I go by this person. You're like, oh, yeah, okay. So, you know, you have to have to do a little bit of that type of stuff too because uh, not everyone uses the same name on Facebook that actually shows up in an email address and stuff like that. So, so there is a vetting process. Um, what about you, Bill? Well, I mean, it's the whole reason we started this really this podcast right was to make sure that people had a good first experience with green trees because if they have a bad first experience then they're done with it you know they're 
very few people are going to come to the table over and over and over and continue to have bad experiences. So, you know, I'm like you, I just want them to have a good experience. And a lot of that is, you know, just I'm providing the right snake. I'm providing the right person. I just want to make sure they're putting it in the right box. And, you know, if they can do that and I have a level of trust, even if they've never purchased from me before, I have a level of trust. They're going to, you know, do what I recommend that they do. Then I'm happy to send an animal. And I can tell you, buddy, I I literally, you, you have much more experience than I do, but the number of animals that I have sent off and that I have had to take back and like reestablish because the animal wasn't doing well. And I can think of one animal in the last eight or nine years that I've sold one animal. And I think that's because, you know, I do care about where the animal goes. And so I, I'm like you, it's, it's not worth it to me. It's not worth it to the animal. It's not worth it to the person that I'm selling to, because quite frankly, you know, there's five people behind them that would take the animal. So I'm I'm pretty particular about where it goes and how it's kept. Right. Absolutely. Steve, yeah, we'll come in. These... Yeah, go, bud. Go, go ahead. No, go. Oh, so, I, you know, I always, that's why I always tell people that ask me that question, you know, best advice, get involved, make friends, help others, be patient. And, um, uh, It'll come. Yeah, you got to be patient. This this is a game of patience, big time, all the mm-hmm. way around. Well, Stephen, I was just going to say we're we're moving along very quickly in our two hours, um, and I, I want to we want to talk to you about your husbandry and your housing and stuff like that. But before we do, I have to inquire about your now legendary memes on Facebook. How did that start? Where did that come from? You know, honestly, it uh, it came from a moment of me starting to not like Facebook as much. Uh, I, I mean, we're not going to talk politics here, but that's kind of where Facebook has all been heading. It's all been negative pandemic politics you know this that and the other social unrest all that it's just gotten so it got so bad to a point where i i wasn't having fun getting on anymore and and you know honestly my facebook feed for me is almost like my own national geographic or animal planet i go on and all i want to see is animals nature snakes you know pictures of people having clutches and beautiful places around the world. I don't want to see um, terrible things happening. If I want to know about those things, I'll look it up. I'll, I'll read the news to get depressed. I don't want to go on Facebook to get depressed. So uh, I kind of went through a period where I was mass unfollowing people's pages just so that I could clean up my own feed. And and I decided, you know what, I'm going to not do those things and I'm not going to partake in those things. And I'm going to put out some different content that's going to be a little bit more positive. So I started posting pictures of beautiful places around the world and beautifully captured pictures of animals. And um, then I started with uh, some chondro memes and, you know, there's a lot of 
little hot buttons in our community about different things like red versus yellow, like bioactive <laughs> versus cla- simplistic. Classic, and the, the red versus yellow <laughs> is your classic, man. Awesome. You know, uh, it's 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 fun. You know, it's all in good fun. It's it's a small respite from everything else going on in the world right now. And if I can offer that to someone for even you know a few seconds, they chuckle and they go about their day. Then they they weren't dwelling on something negative for a moment. And that's that's kind of where that started. Yeah, I mean maybe that's where it started, but it, it seemed to it have evolved into like a next level where, you know, you just keep coming up with, with like the most over the top stuff. (laughs) I mean, what can I say? I'm an artist. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you are. You have have a gift. (laughs) Uh, What is your like off the top? What off the top of your head? What's been like? What has been your masterpiece? Oh, um, yeah, I'd have to say some of the red versus yellow stuff has been my masterpieces. Or, I mean, maybe some of the, <laughs> some of the stuff talking about the originators of the uh, community. You know, uh, <laughs> Rico and and all of them, <laughs> along with uh, guys like Rob Worrell and. And guys like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, that's good stuff. Yeah. I, that's good stuff. I, I love the red versus yellow stuff because it gets the yellow guys, it gets under their skin a little bit, it seems like. It really does. And it's kind of become just like a, a tag. You know, people come and they they – it's been a back and forth with a few people and, and it's, it's fun, you know, it passes the time. It's just another way to engage with people in the hobby and, and brings up interesting conversations and, you know, it's, uh, it's all in good fun. I like getting under people's skin a little bit too. I'll be honest. Yeah. Uh, not me. No way. (laughs) (laughs) The Carpondro guy and the Royal Python guy. I, no, I would, I would never want to do that. <laughs> Have you I made a Carpondro meme? <laughs> you made a Carpondro uh, meme, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you did. <laughs> I love that. It's probably a yellow baby, though. <laughs> Um, so Steve we are friends on Facebook so when Bill was like saying oh we should have you on so I started I like what's your Facebook page just like you know scrolling down what what you allow people to see that are friends and uh, I was cracking up on the uh, you have one you just posted recently and it's the guy coming in with the pizzas when you're new to the community and you come in and it's the bioactive I, I, for some reason, that hit me so bad, I had, like, tears rolling down my face. And my wife is like, what are you laughing about? And I showed her, and she's like, what is so funny about this? And I'm like, you don't, you, you, you can never understand. Um, so, yeah, yeah that, is some great, that is some great stuff you have going on there. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> I'm glad I could lighten you guys' day with the stuff I make. It's, uh. That's that's really what it's for, you know. It's it's the, uh, I mean, laughter laughter really does bring people together, 
And, you know, we have a lot of class clowns in the group, but, uh, you know, people, people really connect through memes these days. So it's, it's, it's been fun. Uh, well, don't stop. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah it's don't good stop. Stuff. Good stuff. So you then, if you really like this stuff, you have to go to a, you have to come to the Northeast Carpet Fest because really that's the only reason I go is to laugh. Um, <laughs> and as the night progresses, you will laugh harder and harder, and it leaves me for like a whole year of like great stuff that you know if I'm thinking of having a bad day, I can think about Carpet Fest and what happened there, and I'm 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 perfectly good again. <laughs> God, don't get me yeah, started. I would love to make it up to a carpet fest. I, I think Bill needs to go ahead and host his that he was talking about for the longest time. Yeah, that's that's going to happen again once you know things settle down a little bit. I'm definitely ready, poised, and positioned to to do the the Southern Carpet Fest again. So hopefully soon. Once 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 things settle down a bit, it started to seem like a fairy tale that we tell to our kids, huh? Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I think um, I see a meme in the future. <laughs> <laughs> things will settle down. So, <laughs> yeah, they will. So, um, do you do anything special with your chondros? Do you follow like standard husbandry practices? Tell us a little bit about how you're keeping your chondros. Well, most of what I'll say about how I keep my chondros will probably sound pretty familiar for you guys because uh, I got most of it off of people you guys have had on the show before. So uh, pretty typical. I have a bunch of PVC uh, cages.com. Um the front opening PVC enclosures with the radiant heat panels from pro products. A little bit of greenery, silk plants hanging from the the roofs of the cages, Uh, a couple water bowls in every cage, one on the ground level, one elevated. Um, I make my own perches. It was kind of a play off of a jungle gym thing that I'm doing, but I wanted to still be able to remove uh, each perch individually. So they're just kind of like in a overlapping cascade, I guess you could call it. Um, very cool. See, I have, that's, that's for adults, all, uh, all runoff herp stats, of course. Um, then for neonates and, uh, yearlings, I have them in racks, uh, from animal plastics. So I have six-quart tubs for neonates uh, with uh, plastic coat hangers cut to size and a water bowl. A couple uh, leaves attached to the to the uh, hanger, so they got something to kind of hide under. And then uh, the Cambro, Cambro tubs in the grow-out rack, also from Animal Plastics. It was a custom build. And then I have the 3D printed perches from David Brahms over at Specialty Enclosure Designs in the Cambro tubs. And um, all pretty typical stuff, 82 to 84 on all of them. All ages get the same temps. I kind of just shoot for a roughly 82 degrees on body temps. I'm kind of in between the 
the whole uh, Terry Phillips being able to maintain all snakes at 80 degrees and and uh, Harlan Wall 82 to 84 year round. So I'm kind of shooting for that, you know, middle ground there, 82-ish, 81, 82. Um, so do and you they use all do a really whole... Do you, do you heat your whole room, or do you do like just individual enclosures? In my in my old house, I was actually heating the whole room because I only had the chondros in there, uh, and I really loved that method actually. And I'm kind of hoping when we get into our new house in this next year here uh, that I'm gonna try and kick the uh, colubrids out so I can go back to that. It was really nice. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> okay. All right. Good. But uh, yeah, yeah to, I was using a. Yeah, I was I was doing the uh, oil-filled heater in the middle of the room with a fan uh, next to it pointed up at the ceiling uh, to circulate air around, and it was run off of a Herbstat HP, which is a relay type thermostat. So it was just keeping the entire room around that 81 to you know, 83 degrees constant and I had right. no supplemental heat there and and honestly I feel like the animals did better in that scenario I had impeccable sheds every single time the animals just seemed so comfortable they would move around here and there they wouldn't just hug one side or the other um, and it was just so nice to be able to walk in the room and know everybody is good everybody is good I can feel that it's 80 degrees here so everybody is good you know, right. I hear a lot of people that have issues with the probe that goes out or something went wrong on their herbstat or heat tape, something got moved and they didn't realize for sometimes a few weeks or until their animal started having some problems that the individual heat source went out. So I really did prefer that method, but right now while the colubrids are sharing the room, I'm doing individual heating on each cage and rack. Okay. Great. Are you a uh, sprayer or are you a I non-sprayer? Am not. A sprayer or a player? I took this one right out of either one of those. I took that one right out of Bill's playbook, who I'm sure got it from someone else who got it from someone else. Um, I just dump some water out on the floor of the cage when I do water changes, and I let that evaporate. For me, I really like that because I feel like being an animal that lives in the canopy and it's kind of, you know, if you notice how they behave when they get sprayed with water, they recoil. They don't like it. They move away from it. So right. I don't want to do that to them. There's no reason. They're in captivity. They can live in optimal conditions and be comfortable and never be, get sprayed in the face. Um, so I really love the idea of, evaporative humidity so just rising from the bottom you know you get a little bit of fog on the glass for a day or two and then let it dry out so that you break the life cycle of any building bacteria and you don't keep it a swamp um, clean healthy a nice cyclic humidity bump and drying out period I get great sheds um, no issues from dehydrated animals and they're honestly, their cages are probably dry the majority of the time. Nice, very so, nice. 
For me, so for me, I think that's. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish up your thought. Uh, I was just gonna say, for me, I feel like that's kind of a uh, overemphasized thing uh, that gets hyped up um, from people is because they live in a rainforest. But you know, realistically, they're gonna go hide under a leaf, under a bromeliad, under under a branch, and and what are they gonna get? They're going to get the water that evaporates up off the floor. Um, so I feel like that's it's a really natural way to provide humidity for them. I agree. That's exactly how I how I handle humidity in my collection as well. And I say when I first you know when I first came into condros, it was like mandatory that you know you had to mist them, you know, spray them down every day and stuff like that. And you know. It was, and I said this before. It was such a habit that one, the the day that I said I'm not doing this anymore, it I had like had to like leave the house so it wouldn't happen because I wanted to do it still. And then as I moved away from it, you know, I became more comfortable with you know my entire collection is not going to just you know be dead off the perch because I'm not spraying them with water every day. Um, so yeah, yeah it, uh, I like that method a lot, and that's exactly what I do. I, I dump water on the bottom and let things kind of roll that way. So I kind of feel like this next topic would be meme worthy. Um, so <laughs> I don't know if you've ever done done a meme with with this, but it would be interesting to see. Uh, so are you a? Uh, uh, do you just feed mice? Do you feed mice and rats, or are you like we're just going with rats as soon as they're big enough? With when you feed your um, collection, you know, I right now uh, I don't have any particularly large animals. Uh, they're still they're still coming of age towards breeding age. Uh, next year will be my first uh, set of animals that are really old enough to to pair up for the first time. So right now they're still on a staple diet of mice. But honestly, I I always tell people there's there's nothing wrong with doing a varied diet. That's the best we can offer because in nature they're going to have a varied diet. They're going to have a lot of different micronutrients from different animals that they eat and what those animals ate. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. We know that rats are a little bit fattier. Um, so that those things can be used as a tool. If you need an animal to gain a little bit of weight before breeding season, you throw it a few rats. Uh, if you need to beef it up right after it's been depleted, laying eggs, throw a few rats in. Uh, one thing I don't do, though, is I wouldn't use avian or reptilian prey. You know, after talking with Harlan about that, uh, it really kind of opened my eyes to how easily diseases and parasites and other things are transmitted between the two because of their similar similar biology and that's just an an, an unnecessary risk so uh, I will be sticking with rodents but as far as rats mice uh, African soft furs uh, I definitely plan to switch it up a little bit I've also tried those reptilinks which um, I, I had the similar experience that Bill did, uh, my animals wrapped them too tight and they just blew out all over the cages and <laughs> absolutely awful experience. That was such a big mess to clean up. It smelled awful. <laughs> oh boy. 
Yeah, I mean, I like okay. the idea getting getting these larger whole prey items ground up. You know, rabbit. Rabbit's a great uh, protein, and they have other things that you can use, frog and whatnot. But the real, the realistically, it's it's just not really viable for our animals. They're just too they're too crazy when they wrap their prey. They just squeeze the shit out of it and burst it all over the cage. Then they yeah. need a bath and the cage needs to be deep clean. It is just an absolute nightmare. But yeah, very diet all the way. Awesome. Yeah, cool. Very cool. What about frequency? Are you a, uh, are you like regimented? Like I feed, you know, every 10 days or you, I feed when I, you know, when I think they need to eat or, you know, tell me about your feeding protocols. Uh, it's, it's feeding protocols are a little bit nuanced with me. I mean, I have a, a generic schedule, but I'm not always on time with it. And then I also keep track of other things. I write everything down. So every shed, every water change, every feeding defecation. So I'm always kind of looking back at my notes of each animal and when was the last time they shed? When was the last time they defecate? And I kind of change it up for every animal depending on their needs. I, um, For young animals, I have a loose schedule, five to seven days. A little bit older animals, 7 to 10 days. A little bit older, you know, 10 to 14. And then, you know, I haven't even gotten any full-grown adults because I kind of took the long way around here and got nothing but neonates and, and yearlings. So uh, once they stop growing, I'll definitely bump that out a little further too, probably 14 to 21 days for most of them. Um, so I'm kind of sparing. I feed sparingly. Um, I have no problem for getting here and there that they haven't been fed for a little bit. I mean, these animals really have evolved to live off of nothing. Um, you know, and in the forest, they're, they're probably only getting a handful of meals in an entire year. I mean, they're living in luxury here in our cages, getting fed on a weekly basis. It's it's crazy. I mean, we've we've all seen that Obese chondros are not healthy chondros, and uh, I have no intention of, of treading on that water. Uh, so I feed sparingly. Um, I'll forget about them from time to time, uh, let them go an extra few days, an extra week, no big deal. Sometimes I'll, I'll shorten those intervals up too, so it's kind of a randomized schedule. And then also... Um, I forget who wrote it up, but a while back I remember reading this really, really interesting and well-written article about the the relationship between obesity and um, reproduction in reptiles and talking about um, how they use things like the wet season, the dry season, times of plenty, times of not having much. They use these different cues in their environment to gauge the passage of time and it lets them biologically decide when is the best time to breed, when is the best time to build follicles, when is the best time 
to lay eggs because I know there's going to be times of plenty here. And so I've kind of taken that into my feeding regimen as well. And any animal over two years old, I start doing a fasting period through the summer. And also I let the cages stay bone dry during that time. So it's kind of a little bit of a dry season for them, kind of trying to imitate that period of estivation that they go into uh, naturally. And then they'll start kind of getting the idea that, oh, this time each year we go through a time of not having much and we're going to conserve our energy. And then afterwards I'll pump up the humidity a bit and feed them in a little bit shorter intervals for a while. So they kind of get the idea, oh, you know, this is this is more the rainy season. And I've been, I'm timing it with the weather over here in, in Texas now too, which is nice. We have hurricane season right after the summer. So um, let them kind of hang out high and dry for uh, six to eight weeks in the summer and then hit them with uh, the high humidity and a little bit shorter intervals of feeding uh, to imitate kind of the monsoon season, reproductive season. Yeah, that's that's classic food cycling. Uh, buddy, do you do that? Do you food cycle, or are you more of a temperature cycling guy? Um, I temperature cycle, and I also, um, I talked about this a little bit earlier, so I have my, the timers in my snake room are set to actual day length, and so um, I believe that's uh, even though they tend to come from an area where there's, you know, pretty, pretty normal daytime, nighttime um, split between, you know, diurnal and nocturnal periods. Um, I honestly believe, you know, that my animal, you know, being raised in this environment where there's, you know, a shorter light cycle, in the winter and starting in the fall and, and longer that, that that's like an environmental clue. So that, that's what I do. I use the lights and I use the uh, temperature. Lights and temperature. I was actually going to ask you guys about how you cycle. It's something that I was really interested in hearing as I get closer towards the point where I'm going to be pairing, just continue to reiterate these things. So I, I did want to hear about you guys' cycling habits and, maybe a little bit about your incubators and, and some of that, if you guys have time, what egg boxes you use specifically, be nice to know. Yeah, for sure, buddy, go ahead. Um, yeah. So I kind of told you how to cycle. I, I start in, um, uh, so I use mostly her, I use all herp stats for my chondros as well. And, um, so I, I start, I always give my animals a, a nighttime drop. Every animal, regardless of age, gets a, you know, three to four degree night drop. Um, and then starting in August, I start slowly for the animals that I'm going to pair. I uh, actually start just dropping the temperature a degree or so every week until finally they get to a period where they just don't, they don't get any nighttime heat and uh, the ambient room temperature is like 70 to 72 degrees. And um, I keep, I do keep a, a 12 hour on 12 hour off uh, temperature cycle. Though, so they still have access to, 
you know, the normal temperatures uh, for 12 hours, regardless of the light cycle. And uh, my my incubator, I, when I first started breeding chondros, I used a cooler-style incubator, and I did many clutches in a cooler-style incubator. What I didn't like about the cooler incubator is though, when you open the lid, to like, you know, inspect the eggs, you know, you dumped all the heat and humidity out and it had to recover. Um, and so I eventually moved to a uh, converted uh, wine fridge, and um, I've been using that ever since. And uh, that that's kind of how I incubate my chondros is I haven't – I've never changed the temperature on it. I don't do like a uh, – a, a period near the end of an incubation where I drop the temperatures. I've always left them at a straight temperature. And um, the reason I do that is because I have one incubator and sometimes I have multiple clutches. So, you know, if you have a clutch, it's only been in the incubator for two weeks and you have a clutch that's ready to hatch, I'm, you know, I don't, don't want to drop the temp. So I leave them, I'll let them mm-hmm. run at 87.8 the entire time. Um, I have a, a false wall in my incubator and the heat source is behind the false wall. There's a fan at the top of the incubator that pulls air from the bottom. So I guess the cooler air goes in the top of the incubator. The warmer air comes out of the bottom behind the false wall and passes over a tub of water. Um, So that's circulating that way. And I um, I also pump fresh air into my incubator with a small aquarium pump and that's actually behind the false wall as well so that way it's you know that's not, something, you know, that's something that i've heard you talk about something i've heard you talk about yeah. before that i would really love to implement myself because no one even talks about that the stagnant air that sits in there for 52 days right i mean i think that's an right. amazing idea putting an air stone down into the the tub of water at the bottom or something it, or or just right. a tube into there and pumping some fresh air in there. That's a that's a fantastic idea. And it sounds like you have well, basically you. a homemade um uh sounds like a homemade hot box incubator pretty much. Yep, pretty much. And so exactly. So you know, wine fridges and even refrigerators don't circulate much fresh air into their environment. And so um you know, I've had experiences in the past where I've had, you know, particularly large clutches and, um, you know, I've had, you know, maybe 30% of those eggs where the, you know, the egg went full term, and the, but the, you know, the baby was dead in the egg. And um, talking to Trooper, um, he said that one of the reasons they did the original incubation, incubation methods that they had used with the, the big uh, one-gallon jars, and they put probes in it. Was because they were they were actually concerned about the oxygen exchange near the end of the incubation process, mm-hmm. and they thought that maybe that was why um, chondro eggs weren't weren't hatching like they should. So, don't know whether that's true or not, but something I just started to do is like I'm just going to you know put some fresh air into that environment because it's fairly closed off. And um, I think mm-hmm. it's you know as the as the embryo grows, there's more of a, you know metabolic process going on. You know we know they generate heat. They're also generating other things as well. And they and as they get bigger, you know they're a, they're going to need better oxygen. I think better oxygen exchange. Um, and if so, if the oxygen levels aren't high enough, 
um, which is possible in a closed environment, um, that maybe that's what's causing, uh, you know, a higher percentage of a clutch not to hatch and not at the full term rate. I still occasionally have so a baby or two that just doesn't make it. So I can't say it's a hundred percent. That's the reason why. Right. Do you, uh, do you, so I'm guessing you use a uh, incubator, like an egg box that allows for air exchange. Right. So I do use egg boxes and I actually don't use a, I actually use a restaurant, um, polycarbonate restaurant food service box. And I can't remember if Basically it's a like quarter a Kimbo or size or a, Cambo, exactly, like exactly. Yeah, I think it actually might be Cambro, but they're more for like a service, like a hot buffet uh-huh. line type service thing. They're they're polycarbonate, they're clear. Um, they have maybe a two or three inch depth, and you know I do the I do put water in the bottom, and the eggs are over that water on uh, the the light diffusing grid, and um, I would usually just put them in a deli cup and just put the eggs in the deli cup and just let them rock and roll. And I have holes in the in the uh, container so some air can get into the container. Um, and, you know, I think uh, Christian Stewart and I have talked about sometimes, um, and I've noticed this too, like I'll, I'll see a neonate trying to push out of the egg and so like in the, I'll go and I'll, I'll cut the egg and like that neonate will come out immediately and I uh, talked to Christian Stewart about this years ago, and I noticed it. And he was—he incubates his eggs in deli cups. And his thought is that the surface contact with the deli cup helps keep the egg more malleable, softer, so the neonate hmm. can cut out easier. Um, so I started doing that as well. And I've also recently, I, I've been putting them on a little bit of vermiculite, and I found that the eggs... Uh, just feel softer throughout the entire incubation process. So, Are you putting the eggs directly you know, on uh, vermiculite? I do. I set them right on the vermiculite, and they're, but they're not buried. They're just right on top. And I, you know, mm-hmm. I've I've always mixed. I've done other python species on vermiculite, and how I mix it is, I get the really coarse grade stuff. You can buy it off Amazon. And I mix it with water, and I squeeze it with both hands so all the water comes out. And that's what I feel works well for in my incubator. And so I just put a thin layer in that deli cup. It's maybe a half inch to a quarter of an inch. And I just I just set the eggs on top, and I watch them because sometimes I will notice it seems like they're they are absorbing a little bit extra moisture. And if they are, I just I take them out of that deli cup and I set them directly on that light diffuser for a few days until they kind of return to normal, and then hmm. I put them back. Um, That's cool. So, I you know I think I've I, I feel I ha- I'm having better success this way, um, and you know, but you know, like everything, you know, the, your mileage may vary, um, but that that's just you know always. You know, we're all snake keepers, and we're always trying to figure out, you know, we're successful, but we can be better. And it's just like, you know, these small refinements that you learn, which for me I think has been, you know, more successful for me with, you know, a higher percentage of animals hatching from a clutch, just using these different methods. 
another that, that's trick pretty... I remember you talking about, uh, I don't know if you're still using it, but the uh, putting something underneath one side of the tub so that it's slightly tilted to one side so that condensation will roll off the back of the tub. You still doing this? I am still doing that. And actually, Tim Morris was the one that told me to do this. You know, he was over here, you know, many, many years ago, and we were just, you know, you know, hanging out, talking snake stuff, uh, boring my wife. And, um, you know, we were just, uh, I just set up this, actually that, that wine cooler as an incubator. And, um, you know, just telling him, like, now I'm concerned about the condensation. He was like, you know what I would do? I would go to the hardware store and I would buy, like, different size PVC uh, tubing. And so on the outside of my egg box, I have maybe a, uh, an inch and a half piece on the back side, two of them. So my egg box is set up at an angle. And then what I do is I set up on, on the uh, and inside the egg box under the light diffuser is another two-inch piece, uh, two, two, two two-inch pieces of PVC pipe so that it it's level, but the box is at an angle. And so I get condensation. Right, the condensation so the light diffuser is level. Right, nice. and the box is canted at like maybe a 45-degree angle. And so any condensation naturally accumulates and rolls towards the front of the box and not down on top of any of the eggs. That's and such I, a I smart do that. idea. And I honestly don't know why I haven't heard more people talk about that because it just seems so... I don't know. It's just so clever and and an easy way to keep the drops from falling down onto the eggs. Yep. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever talked to Tim, but Tim's a super smart guy and I'm very happy to have him as a resource with uh, snake stuff. And um, actually one of the things I, I actually wanted to uh, talk a little bit about David Brahms out, you know, maybe you can uh, print out off of your 3d printer, some like triangles, and market them where they just go under the egg box and then go inside the egg box under the light diffuser, and that way people can have uh, an egg box. I think he started to so. make a kit. If I'm not mistaken, he okay, started good. to make a kit that implemented that idea. I'm not sure how far he went with it, but I remember a post talking about it um, where he made a little thing for covering the vent holes and um, for tilting the box and yeah, I I'm not sure if he put that up on his website or if it was just a, something he tried a while back, but I definitely think that's a great idea and uh if that's something he offers on his website, I think a lot of us will buy it. Well, we'll have to talk to David about it and see if we can further his efforts in bringing that to to market. Yeah. And and that's it. And that that's what I do and Nice. I normally, uh, normally the evening of the 51st day, I see my first egg pip. So, and then and do you cut you the know. other eggs once the first one pips, or you wait 24 hours, you don't do it at all? I wait 12, and then okay. I'll, I'll pip the rest. Okay. And then, all right, Bill, you're up. Then after that... Yeah. <laughs> how how do I follow that? 
Well, you, you start with, with the Snapple refrigerator that you're hatching a thousand <laughs> eggs a year out of. I'm familiar with all of Buddy's hocus pocus, look this way, look that way, all his magic incubation tricks. But <laughs> listen, I'm not I'm not buying any of it. <laughs> Actually, I incubate very similar to him. I do a straight bake. I have, like you alluded to, many eggs in the incubator all at the same time, different species. I mean, just 87, 88 degrees. Um, water substrate only. Um, I, you know, I I think, buddy, maybe we talked about this before. I put holes in my incubation box, and early in the incubation cycle, I cover those holes with uh, like uh, packing tape, masking tape, or whatever. And as they get farther along in the incubation process, and I start to see more humidity build up inside those egg boxes, then I'll I'll remove that strip of um, tape to get more ventilation in the in the uh, egg box. But I think it's a great idea to to put oxygen inside the incubator. I mean, I I certainly don't think that would hurt. Um, I have not done that, and I've had good successful hatch rates. I think it's maybe because I really am op- opening my incubator almost every day. And so I think that generates some fresh um, airflow into the incubator. Um, and that's because I have so many uh, egg boxes that are in such a different degree of incubation um, that I'm always opening up. And many times I'm opening up the incubator, opening up the egg box, and I'll, I'll wipe down the the, the surface of the egg box um, when they start to develop humidity. So, but I, 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 you I don't think keep all of them out of tilt. No, I, I don't. Uh, I think it's uh, certainly wouldn't hurt anything. I mean, I think it's a good idea. I just haven't found the need to do it because I'm, I'm typically opening up that incubator and opening up that egg box when it's close to the end of incubation, when you start to develop um, condensation on the roof of the egg box, because that's, I, I normally don't have that until it's really pretty close to the end of the incubation, you know, cycle that, that there's so much condensation on the top that it, there's any threat of it dripping down on top of the egg. So, you know, I just open, I open up the incubator quite a bit. I open up the mature egg boxes quite a bit. I wipe down the surface and, you know, that's, that's what I do. Right on. But, you know, I certainly don't think there's anything, um, uh, you know, wrong or controversial about the way that Buddy does it as well. I think it's just, you know, whatever works for you. Yeah. And and that is a good point, Bill. Like, I don't, you know, I don't open my incubator much. I may go, you know, 10 days before I open it. So that very well, you know, you know you being having access to your incubator and you, you know, you're open and you're doing things in there that definitely uh, could be, you're essentially doing the same thing, but in a different way. Yeah. It's just introducing fresh, you know, fresh airflow into the box. And, um, you know, my incubators, I don't, you know, it's a, it's a pretty large vessel. I mean, it's a Snapple cooler, um, and so it, I don't have the fear of opening it and then closing it and the temperature's going, you know, crazy off, you know, it, it holds the temperature well, even if I open it every day. 
So I'm not worried about inconsistent temperatures, and I get increased airflow and ventilation when I open it. So. Right on. Good stuff. Everyone's going to appreciate hearing that. Yeah, I think uh, the main I had... thing is, I, I was just going to say, Stephen, I think the the most important thing is that you dial in your incubator, you know, whatever works for you. And it took me, you know, several years to dial in mine, um, mm-hmm. you know, based on what the ambient humidity inside the incubator was versus the humidity inside the egg boxes and maintaining a constant temperature inside the incubator. You know, it's do you not do one a wet things. or dry chamber? Uh, I do a wet chamber. I mean, I put, I have a, uh, I have a, it's a large pan of water on the bottom of my incubator that puts the ambient okay. incubator humidity at about 85% probably. Okay. I think it's, I think it's almost impossible to get your eggs too wet. I mean, I think you can, but I think you're much, much more likely to dry your eggs out. So, mm. you know, I, 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 I keep a pretty wet incubator. Nice. See, I had one other quick question for Buddy real quick before we move on. Um, That hypo that you produced, is it starting to go through OCC yet? And just what do you expect to see from that animal? Um, It has not started any changes yet. The several clutch mates have started going through their change, so I'm expecting something very soon. Um, and I don't know, to be honest with you, um, what it will look like. I'm thinking yellow. Um, I've always had a, a, a theory that was shared with me many years ago that a lot of the high yellow chondros that are in captivity are actually hypomelanistic. Um and so uh, it was shared with me from a keeper in Germany many years ago. I had a Bioc female that he thought was hypomelanistic and um, chatting online with him about what characteristics he believed made a hypomelanistic chondro. Um, you know, so things like a gray tongue, um, a high yellow animal, and that's uh, – and so a, a – a neonate pattern that um, looks kind of a chocolatey color instead of like a dark, like a, a black color on a neonate were some mm-hmm. uh, indicators he thought would be representative of a hypomelanistic chondro. Um, and so you so, think there's others out there that people just don't I realize do. they have? I do. So um, I bought this Biak actually from Harlan. I bought a, a red biak and a yellow biak, and so it's possible that these animals I had were were clutch mates. And um, the the female was the one that this keeper in Germany felt was possibly a hypo or he, what he believed was a hypomelanistic chondro. And so I paired those two biaks together, and um, all of the animals that are currently living and the ones that I saw before maybe they perish as adults were all high yellow. Um, and John Leckie has 
uh, one of those animals. So I think it might he may have you know been on to the traits. And strangely enough, um, when I shared a picture of that baby with to uh, Christian Stewart, he that was the first question he asked. He's like, "Was this from your? And does this have any of your Biak blood in it that you uh, that are hypomelan that we thought were hypomelanistic?" And it, it didn't. But I will say that the lemon tree animal that I have here, which is a high yellow animal, obviously, the pure lemon tree, his tongue is also gray. So I think that there could be hypomelanistic chondros that are out there that we're just not aware of um, because, you know, they may not um, be what we think they may look like. Um, and it makes sense because yeah. um, if, you if you understand the color change, in uh, chondros, it's the the melanocytes are turned on, so the the pigment is uh, starts to develop, and so an animal that which would be and there's a lot of melanism in those pigments, so the animal that's hypomelanistic wouldn't have a lot of green and maybe a high yellow animal. So I won't say that every mm -hmm. high yellow chondro is hypomelanistic, but there's probably animals out there that are. David Newman, for instance, had a animal that he purchased, a uh, Bushmaster animal that he purchased that was a high yellow animal, and it, too, also had a great tongue. Um, so, and that animal, I think, had maybe Biak or Kofiao in it. Um, so, there are, I think there are examples out there. We may just have missed them, just not knowing what to look for, uh, for the traits. So, I'm expecting this animal to maybe be a, a high yellow animal, but I, I really don't don't know what it's going to look like um so you know as soon as it starts going through the change i'll make sure that i take photographs and share with everyone it was definitely not you know it was one of it's it was one of these things where it wasn't planned um and i one of the things that you know i try to do is provide entry-level clutches of animals that way people that are interested in chondros and want a true captive bred animal they can have i try to do a clutch or two a year so that that's available and so this was a repeat pairing um that i you know made used in that instance as a you know an entry level uh captive bred chondro clutch and so this was a repeat pairing and this animal came from that repeat pairing so now it's kind of done the opposite of what i wanted to do but you know, it's it's been quite a surprise. Um, it's been interesting to see. Um, I do now that um, I've shared some pictures with some clutch mates, with some folks that are, um, and I think this was important too. I wanted to get the opinions of folks who were outside of the condor community, because I thought they would give right. me their best, unbiased opinion on what I was seeing um, and what the animal may represent, and so. Um, there's another animal in the clutch that um, looks different, but then has no black markings on it whatsoever. Like, and it's a red baby um, that, unlike other members of the clutch, so the thought is that animal may not be hypomelanistic, but it may be expressing markers for a uh, heterozygous hypomelanistic animal. So it's, it's going to be interesting to watch. Um, I've been kind of Definitely. guarded about it um, because, you know, I don't really know for certain. Like, there's a couple people that still think it could be an albino, which, I, you know, I don't think it is. Um, so I've been kind of guarded about it and um, just kind of, 
enjoying the process um, and kind of, you know, interested to see where it goes. And I'm hoping that it, you know, it will be repeatable in the future. And, um, and if, like we had talked about earlier, something bad happens to any of this, any of these projects, you know, Bill has an animal that's a sibling, so maybe it can be resurrected in the future. <laughs> nice. I'm going to clone it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, it'll be interesting to see what happens with it, where that project goes. It would be cool to start having a few be. other morphs in the Chondra world. Right. Yeah, I'm right. on the fence about have... that. Yeah, you know, I've, I've never been a morph person, and so... You know, when when this happened, I'm like, I I know nothing about this. Like, I've never paid attention to, I know about albinos, but I've never paid attention to hypomelanism or any other type stuff. So I had to really go to people that were really in tune to what um, other closely related species, um, you know, what they've what they've produced and what they kind of look like. So it's been an interesting experience and not at all anything that I was expecting. Right on. Very cool. Well, it's good stuff, man. All of it's been good stuff. I mean, you know, what a good show. It's been what, yeah. buddy, two months? Two two months yes. since we've we've no, I, maybe, I think April, Bill. So it's been longer than that. Damn. And this is twenty twenty, so it feels like two years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the only problem with this show is that there's not enough of them. Right. Well, but. That's completely understandable. I mean, I, you guys are both very busy people, busy breeders, family men. I mean, Bill, you don't have as much of an excuse. You're retired now, but no. Uh, well, I mean, it's, but, it's not it's not even that as much, Stephen. Um, Buddy and I have talked a lot. I mean, there's just no reason to come on and repeat, you know, the same information like week or month after month. Let's let's just get some new true. info and. and and a new guest and let's just, you know, blow some new info out. And if it's a month later or three months later, then, you know, that's when we do it. Well, I'm, uh, I'm honored that you guys thought I was a good candidate for your four month hiatus to come back on the <laughs> air. <laughs> absolutely. Great. It was great talking to you in person. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, learned a lot. Um, you know, um, it, I'm, I think I'm going to have a new approach to some of the things of, that I see on Facebook with my group based on um, listening to how you handle certain situations. So it definitely is, you know, that's the great thing about this. You know, uh, Bill and I often learn as much um, about things when we bring people on, um, and that's that's the great thing of sharing the knowledge is we all grow and we all are able to take in something new and often maybe even reflect upon something which we thought was maybe the correct pathway and maybe it isn't. 
Yeah. We are all Buddy, are apprentices in a hobby where no one's a master. Well, that's right. I think Buddy's getting. I think Buddy's getting ready to order a couple of exoterras. <laughs> <laughs> Let me talk you down off the bridge, Buddy. <laughs> some, well, some vertical, some vertical exoterras. That's what you need. Oh my! I, uh, I was thinking about getting the thirty-six inch tall ones, but um, yeah. I only would use those for fresh hatched neonates. I wouldn't, the condors I have now are too old for that, so I'm going to wait till next year. Oh man, love it! I hope love that it. the listeners know that you're kidding right now. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> you can always get a top. Uh, from, from, you can always get a top from Ashley and Stephen. They would hook yeah, me up actually, for sure. Yeah, actually, you know, I. I actually just met them at the Conroe show that they vended uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. really Fantastic. nice people, and I'm I'm very impressed with the cages that they have set up there. And I'm definitely eyeing some of those one foot cubes for uh, quarantining yep. neonates and yearlings as they yep. come in. That heat, that integrated heated back wall. That's a, that's just that's an amazing little uh, contraption there. Yeah, yeah, it is. I, I, I have one. I love it. Uh, All right, boys, let's so wrap it guys... up. All righty. Okay. All right, Stephen. Thank you so much. We're going to have to have you back because we missed a lot of stuff, and I'm not sure how that happened, but we're going to have to have you back <laughs> so we can finish this conversation. That sounds good to me. Um, but oh, you're gonna have to have more meme fun talking with you guys. That way, I can. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, more absolutely. memes. More memes. We need more memes. All right. All right. Definitely. I'll all get right, to work. All right. All right. Have a great, great night, job, Stephen. Stephen. Thank you. All right, guys. Ooh, another good one, buddy. Absolutely. What? What? Yeah. Uh. Man, just he's here's I've never met him, but my impression is very down to earth, uh very in tune with people. Um yep. very respectful. Um which is all you could hope for in someone who's, you know, gonna be the future of the hobby that these two old men, you know, with our limited time left, uh can leave the hobby to. Absolutely. He's, uh, he's very, he's very focused. Um, and he's willing to do the work, you know, I mean, what else can you ask for? Nothing. Yeah. I, I, the only thing I can ask for is that, um, he stays, he sticks around. That's it. Yeah. He's, um, you know, we would not have had him on if we didn't think there was a chance he wasn't going to be around. He's going to have, um, He's going to have a, a successful uh, path with his green trees. He's going to be a successful breeder, and you know he's just checking all the boxes, doing all the right stuff. Absolutely, that's a good thing. All right, my friend. All right, Bill. All right, so we'll be back what um, sometime in February, maybe. <laughs> just kidding. Let's see how the rest of, <laughs> let's see how the rest of 2020 goes. 
Yeah, right. Let's make no promises. <laughs> no promises. This may be our last recorded episode. It Who knows? It could, it could be. <laughs> All right, Bill. Great spending time with you. Enjoy your 80-degree fall-like weather in Texas. I'm jealous already. Usual, my friend. Talk soon. All right. All right. Bye.